Hello and welcome to another gripping instalment of the Gig Stories podcast. I'm Chris and he is still in Cornwall. Yeah, Alex is enjoying the last couple of days in sunny Cornwall and as such he doesn't have any access to internet so we can't do the normal um, bants that we have at the start and the end of each podcast episode so uh, you're stuck with me but I'll keep it mercifully brief. This week's guest is jazz saxophonist Tommy Smith. Now if you know anything about jazz you'll know about Tommy Smith and you know he's been on the scene since since the 80s. We talk about his early days, how he got hooked on playing the saxophone and hooked on jazz in particular. We talk about his practice regime, which was fairly rigorous, um, even as a, a young teenager. We talk about his journey from Westerhales, uh, a housing estate just outside Edinburgh, to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and what it was about Berkeley that makes it so special as a, a centre for learning for young jazz musicians. We talk about his first trip to New York, where he ended up playing a gig with Jaco Pistorius, and, yeah, other other various events which happened, um, which must have been fairly boggling as a, as a mid, mid to late teenager. Yeah, we talk about a load of stuff. Now, with Tommy, you kind of press the button and let him go. So um, you'll hear more from Tommy than you do from me and Alex, um, but that's I think the episode is all the better for that. So anyway, buckle up. Here is Tommy Smith. Hello and welcome to this week's Gig Stories podcast with me, Chris. And me, Alex. What an episode uh, we have for you today. No, our guest today is someone I wanted to get on since we started the podcast, um, not least because his was my first ever gig on the 9th of June 1989, and um, probably the reason I took up saxophone. Um, so in 1995, he founded the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra, and our guest today is band leader, composer, educator, and saxophonist Tommy Smith. Tommy, how are you doing? I'm very well, Chris, and uh, nice to meet you, Alex, too. So thanks for inviting me on. My pleasure. No, you're welcome. This uh, this gig that I was, the, the first gig, I was looking at it today, the ticket, and because um, we keep all our tickets, um, both of us were geeks. Yes, and and um, yeah, I mentioned in our first ever podcast episode that I was a bit of an a, an early adopter. Um, so you know, on on gig tickets, it tells you the number of the ticket at the bottom, and my ticket was <laughs> my ticket was number five that was sold. You know what gig it was? It was the Volunteer Hall in Gala Shields. Was that with no piano or guitar? Was that just trumpet? No, no. This was um, Jason Rebello on on piano, oh. and um, and there was um, Clark Tracy and Alec Dankworth. Right. Okay, I remember now. Yeah. 
So tell me, this, this, is, this is making my night because on our very first episode, Chris and I spoke about our first gigs and luckily both of us were brought up in very musical households. And so we both went to quite a lot of classical concerts and my mum took me to opera and, and we, said, we said to each other, we've got to make a decision on what our first gig proper was. And, and mine, mine was Michael Jackson and, and, and Chris, Chris said, mine's Tommy Smith. That's going to be my first gig. That is my first gig proper that I chose to go and see and bought tickets. So it's a, it, it's a pleasure. And, and I've heard so much about you from Chris as well, because what's great for me is this podcast has taught me a lot about jazz. And so speaking to a, a fan like Dennis Lawson, gave me a whole new a whole new plethora of artists to listen to and preparing for this evening as well has has opened my eyes even further into jazz so it's a it's a pleasure to uh, to have you on and, and for you to take take time with us how how do we find you how i know it's been a, a, an interesting year for everyone and i don't want to talk too much about that but it has sort of forced us all into um, different places and uh, creatively different things. Uh, how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, obviously, same boat with everybody else. The the musicians' boat, which has one oar and a few holes in it, but you know, <laughs> yes. a big bucket and pouring out the water with everyone else. My last gig before lockdown was March the seventh in in. Um, Sandvika, which is in Norway, and I was playing a gig with the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra, which is a, a, was a gig that we'd been building up to for ages. It was a version of um, Peter and the Wolf in Norwegian. Wow. So I'd written this version in Scots uh, with the poet Liz Lockhead, and I'd arranged the music and developed it. Yeah, a bit longer. It was about an hour in, in total. And we produced it in Scotland with Makoto Ozoni on piano, who came from Japan to do it. And, you know, lo and behold, we put it out at half past seven for adults and, and the whole place was full of kids. Um, and that kind of scared us because we didn't we didn't make it for kids. We made it for adults. But the, uh, but the kids enjoyed it and they, we sustained an hour of their attention, which was a miracle. Some of the parents um, I told us afterwards, um, but we, yeah, we did it in Japan and Japanese, and then that that last gig was in Norwegian with a a comic actor called uh, Jakob Andersen, who was really great. And of course, um, I had to have all the different languages in my score so I could cue the band at the right right times uh, phonetically in Japanese because I can't read Japanese, but in Norwegian it's pretty easy to follow. Yeah, lots of words are the same as in Scots and in Japanese. So that was my last gig, and then after that, there was nothing. And so what I did is try to catch up on all the work that I hadn't finished because <laughs> I'm always so busy I can't do half the stuff that uh, is in my head. So and know, is that writing? Is it, and do you mean writing your own music? No, it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. It's writing, <laughs> practicing, mixing, recording, building a garage. Do, I mean, it's everything that I just can't get around to. So, uh, one of the main things was trying to uh, do finish a solo project, mix my second Karma record, which I recorded. I mean, it was 2015 I recorded that. Still haven't got around to it yet. I mean, there's just stuff sitting there, 
SNGO videos, you know, days and days of footage and recordings still, even if I had all the time in the world, I still couldn't get around to all of it. So I was just playing catch up. And, and because the traveling wasn't there, um, you know, I was busy as, as ever. And then I think our first gig uh, was December with SNGO, where we celebrated our 25th anniversary and we played a kind of collage of music through repertoire and original music to celebrate that. And we did that in Perth. That was a live stream, an actual live stream in the moment, which is pretty difficult to do. It's not a pretend live stream. It's a yeah. real live stream. So you got 60 minutes to, to do it live. It's really, really uh, a challenge and uh, something I will never do again. <laughs> but um, Never say never, Tommy. Never say never. Well, we need, we need more lockdowns for that, that, that to happen, but it, it's not going to happen on my watch at the moment. Um, so, so it's, been quite, it's been quite fruitful for you then. It's, it's really, you, you've had a lot to concentrate on and, and creatively your juices have continued flowing then. You've been, you know, you've been embraced in that time. Yeah, we've got the, the students, you've got education, lessons, sorting out uh, websites and, you know, portals for the kids to put their performances on, uh, working out how to engage with them on Zoom, uh, becoming, uh, what do you call it, you know, if you're going to work online, then you've got to, as they say, you've got to kick ass online. So you don't just like stand <laughs> there in front of your camera with with no light in the dark in a corner with your eyes on the, the thing you've got to learn how to do overlays and integrated um you know educational things which engage the the viewer so you know we, we had to go and do seminars and, and learn about a, a program called prezi which allows you to do all this overlaying stuff that links in pictures and videos and text and and so that was great. And then also to be able to invite lots of guests to, to do masterclasses, um, you know, with some help from my youth orchestra's uh, funding and the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, we put our money together and, and got all these great guests who would never have normally, you know, presented a masterclass uh, in person because you're, of the, the flying and the hotels and all that stuff. So we, 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 we had a great uh, run there. We just finished our eighth and a whole wide spectrum of people from um, an Arabic bi-musical performer who plays equally solid in jazz as he does in Turkish um, folk music. And we had Jasmine Horn, Kurt Elling. Um, we had scholars. Um, we had the critic Stuart Nicholson talking about globalization and localization, which is very interesting. We've had promoters, festival directors. Um, our next one is an agent. And so the, the students are getting, you know, a bit of every kind of uh, thing around the business. Do you think this will change going forward? Do you think you can, you know, for the, from a student's point of view, do you think there will be more of, uh, of these things, which, as you say, that, you know, the students have been lucky considering the circumstance. They've been lucky. They've had, you know, such experts doing that. Do you think... That, that will continue perhaps it, it may maybe but i don't think they feel lucky at all they feel uh not lucky i mean they want to get in they want to play they want to engage they want to hang out they don't they don't, don't want to yeah. sit in front of the screen they, they're lucky that they've seen these 
you know, videos and engage and yeah. ask questions and all that. But it's, I don't think they see it as a as a big deal. Um, they just want to get back and, and play. And because they're young, they feel like they, they, they should. And uh, so hopefully, hopefully soon when the hugging all begins, we can... <laughs> You know, when the government says we can do this and do that, maybe we can get back in the same room. But, you know, when you've got lots of wind players and trombonists and, oh, trumpet, yeah. you know, spitting all over the room, it's a bit difficult um, to do that in small uh, jazz yeah. rooms, you know, with no windows. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, we'll get there. It'll take time. Uh, we just Absolutely. need to vaccinate the entire planet, not just uh, the rich nations or, no. you know, or we'll never get rid of it. Absolutely. Well, Tommy, we're, um, so this podcast is all about the live music experience. And um, I suppose we should really just take you back to, to being a kid and what you remember of gigs and, and music as a kid. When, when were you first aware of, I, I suppose, just music in general, really? When, when were you, was there a lot of music around the house when you were growing up? Probably, um, but I probably didn't notice it. Um, I remember when I was nine, I had a sore shoulder in uh i went to a primary school in in western hills called dumbryden d-u-m-b-r-y-d-e-n dumbryden you know all that <laughs> yeah and uh the teacher felt sorry for me and sent me to music oh this kid's got us a sir shudder send him to music so i went i went down and they gave me a recorder and uh you know i wasn't interested in the least. I obviously learned what I had to learn, but I w was really interested in art. I wanted to be a, a, an artist. I lo loved drawing and, and mostly drawing. I didn't think I had any paints, but I, I loved drawing. Um, and then I got uh, a brass instrument as well. They put me in a brass trio and uh, my lip or, my, or the person teaching me was so poor, they couldn't teach me a technique to play high on the range on the trumpet so they kept on demoting me to bigger and bigger instruments thinking well if he plays low give him a low instrument <laughs> carting this big thing to school and i i wasn't interested in that kind of music so um at primary school not in the least um i loved art and i loved uh i mean one of my hobbies was like walking on fences so i love to walk on fences like really high or walk across a bridge across a motorway on the on the side of the railing i would daredevil myself a lot that that's what i was kind of up to um, what? yeah that that's what you do in schemes or you you do two-man hunt but you're not just doing it in a small area you do it over the entire scheme using all the the scrapers and everything and <laughs> you know you're running and fear fearful of your life <laughs> no, it sounds like you were a fearless child, Tommy. Well, I was just same as everybody else. You you don't know you're impoverished until someone tells you when you're older. So yeah. you're happy um, as a pig in muck and yeah. not bothered about it, you know. Um, so, uh, but my dad, uh, my stepfather, he had a drum kit and he loved jazz and he would play at weekends some records and that's the first time i saw uh, a picture of the saxophone i was on a record um by stan getz called andy where i actually have it here because my, my uh, father and mother-in-law they framed it for me and gave it to my birthday many years ago so 
This is that's the first album there, and it's actually got an alto on the cover, but Stan Getz doesn't play the alto. He's a tenor player. So um, I love the shape, and I love the the shininess of it all. And in in uh, Western Hills, where where I lived, all the schools got a music test. Every individual, it was called the music Bentley test. And so you were stuck in a room, and the music instructor from the from WEC would come around and and say, "Okay, which note is higher or lower than the other, or does this match this?" And you know, a whole bunch of questions. And at the top of the page, you were to write what instrument you would like to play. And I wrote tenor saxophone, and probably just because my dad kept on going on about. Hi, this tenor guy. This, Ken, this tenor guy is really good. You know, Coleman Hawkins, Stan Getz, these tenor, tenor guys, tenor saxophone. And, and it, so it was kind of implanted in my brain. And lo and behold, when I went to WEC, they had two tenor saxophones and, and I got presented with one because um, I put down that instrument and I went home and I showed my dad and, and he goes, look, here you go. Tenor saxophone. What do you what, what do you do now? <laughs> <laughs> Would that have been at the sort of age of 12? Yeah, it was just yeah. when you go into high school, it was exactly at 12. And I didn't know anything about the instrument. I just, uh, I was shown how to put it together, put the reed on, and that was it. And then there was a book inside the case called Tuna Day. Tuna Day. I had that for my violin. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Tuna Day. It's a, great, it's a great book to have because it shows you all the fingerings for all the notes, uh, the chromatic scale. Yeah, so that's yeah. what I learned first was a chromatic scale all the way from the bottom to the top so you know you're going to work something you got to know what all these are so i worked it out and then i went i went to work and that was to copy what i I heard on 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 this record actually on uh and the angels swing it was called and what was interesting is that some of the phrases which were a bit fast i couldn't i couldn't hear them and i didn't know anything about music really i had uh um, I had absolutely n- no clue how to read, no chords, nothing. Uh, I probably had seen some music from the brass stuff and that, but I probably was winging it, you know, I was just winging it. Were you no, not having no, a lesson in school with, with the saxophone? No, not, not, well, I went straight home and I started practicing and learning the chromatic scale before, you know, so... My my teacher was a clarinet teacher, a guy called Jim O'Malley, and he didn't play the saxophone. And he always <laughs> told me later I, that he was one page ahead of me in the book because he didn't know how to play this. So, well, I have to I have to say, my my saxophone teacher in school, she was a bassoonist. So I think she was probably the same as as Mr. O'Malley. There, kind of, you know. <laughs> Right, need to need to be one one step ahead, but yeah, she she played the bassoon. So did you learn a double lip combature then? No, no, I think she or just kept. I think she just kept on top of it. I mean, I had started with a another another guy. He left a, a guy called Charlie Mains. He he moved up to Dundee, I think. I think Dundee, um, but only just as I'd I'd started. I started on the tenor, um, but I just felt like it was too big, so I ended up getting an alto. Um, ah. um, yeah, but I mean, I, you you were into Stan Getz and, and Coleman Hawkins, and I was into Paul Desmond and Cannibal Adderley. So I was kind of I, I knew what I wanted to to go for. 
I'm nothing like them, but... So, is there, is there a time with, as a 12-year-old and growing up, Tommy, is there a time that you can point to and, and say, that is the moment that I fell in love with the instrument and thought, I want to do this for a long, long time. You know, I played the violin from the age of five and just never really... I played it for years and years right through high school and secretly I always wanted to play the drums, but we couldn't afford the drums at home. So I just had a, a violin. So I never really fell in love with playing the violin. I always loved the sound of it and used to love going to concerts with my mum and listening to, you know, violinists. Was there a moment or a period, short period of time where you, where you know, I fell in love with this instrument and this is what I wanted to do? Yeah, I would I would think there is. Um, I do remember learning these solos uh, step by step, and um, some of the fast lines I'd I'd have to put a, a plate on the on the record um, with a stone on it to take it down an octave. I had to find the right size stone. It was heavy enough what? to put it down. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. And and then I would learn it by rote. So I'd learn the. The notes and the phrasing and the vibrato, all the kind of nuances and the rhythm and the swing and all that. And then my dad and my mom, they'd make me play for friends. But I was a very nervous kid, very shy, and I could never do it in front of people. So I'd always have to go behind the couch and play, <laughs> put on the record and I'd play behind the couch. And it wasn't just that record, it was like a whole bunch of Glenn Miller they play, yes. uh, and I'd play all the tunes and the solos, and then some Coleman Hawkins. I remember a tune called Blue Room. I'd play that and play the solo, and but all be, all behind the couch. And it wasn't until uh, my <laughs> dad used to go to this Dixieland um, band, Edinburgh Festival Jazz Band, on a Sunday, and he decided to take me along when I was twelve. And I'd only been playing for a short length of time, but I, I really was into it. I mean, I'd practice um, pretty much. I'd go to school, uh, there'd be a break, I'd practice for the 15 minutes, there'd be lunch, I'd eat, I'd go and practice in the school uh, music department. After school, I'd go home and I'd practice until nine every day, except at the weekends where I'd practice. Um, and <laughs> so by the time I'd been playing for six months or so, I had learned. Um, I really got into uh, learning stuff. So I learned a couple of blues uh, solos. Like I could play two choruses of a blues with no idea what a blues was or any chord scales, but I'd remember the entire solo. And so my dad, he took me to this, uh, this hotel. It's called the Barnton Hotel. And he asked the band if I could sit in. So I went and I was terrified because I'd never played in front of people and my stomach was churning. And the endorphins were going through the roof and <laughs> butterflies were, you know, turning into vampire bats. In my, my, my <laughs> and so I went and played and I played the two choruses that I knew and they thought I was improvising, right? So I got a big round of applause. Amazing. And I was like, oh, so this is what it's about. And then they uh, said, do you want to play another song? And I went, Okay, uh, what do you know? I said, well, I know I got rhythm. So I played the melody of I got rhythm and then they kind of pointed to me to solo. <laughs> I had no idea why they were pointing at me. 
So at that point, I learned there's something else to learn, and it's called improvisation. So that was quite funny. Um, but, you know, those are, those were the days where, you know, it was really smoky, and you know, the the I think the drummer he had he had a white drum kit, but it was kind of nicotine color after all those Sundays yes. and he played. Um, but so that kind of went on, and then my dad took me to a, a jazz school when I was 13, and um, I met there Gordon Cruikshank, who was a very influential saxophone player in Edinburgh, and he was head of the Saturday program. And I remember very clearly, um, he, you know, we're standing at the Carlton studio, and there's a bar there. I mean, it's closed. It's uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. And we're, we're peering down at a bit of paper, and he says to me, do you ken what a chord is? Do you know what a chord is? And I'm going, uh, is it a pair of trousers? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. A chord. And he goes, no, a chord is built up like this. And he started writing these notes of a dominant seventh chord. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he recommended a book, a book called Improvising Jazz by Jerry Coker. And I have it on my shelf here. But that's a book that really taught me everything, the fundamentals of harmony, thematic development, chord scales, analysis of uh, stuff and all that. And it was really integral to very quick growth. And uh, But at the school, I managed to hook up with some other players, uh, a drummer called John Ray and a piano player called Vincenzo Cruccioli, who was much older. He was an adult at the, the course. He was about 45 um, he played piano, and he had a car, right? <laughs> and and so we used to go to his house the day afterwards. So we'd have the jazz school on the Saturday, and we'd learn the next song and do the ensembles and that. And the songs weren't easy. They were really good. You know, Yesterday's by Jerome Kern, I, Kern, I remember, was a really difficult song. I went through so many keys. I had to work hard on that. But on Sundays, we would go and play at Vincenzo's house for the entire day until night. And, and he, would, he, he um, visually showed me how a scale fits a chord. So he'd play the chord, E minor 7 flat 5, and he'd play the scale. And he'd say, well, you can use this one, which is Locrin, or you can use Locrin sharp too. And he would show me. And because I saw it visually, it like made complete sense. And so at the age of 13, my concept of, of how, how things worked was, was coming into shape. And so we, we, you know, we were really playing all the time. We had a repertoire and we had no gigs. So we entered a competition at the Edinburgh Jazz Festival. And I'd, I was 14 at that time. And we won the best band and got and I got the best soloist and we got all these write-ups in the newspaper. So Vincenzo and I, we went around all the bars in Edinburgh that played music with our, with our write-ups to prove that we could play. And we got a gig on a Tuesday in a place called Le Grand Nuit, the Frog on Abercrombie Place. And then another gig on Wednesdays at the Holt, at the, um, the uh, not the Holt, oh, that's in Glasgow. Um, it's a bar in Cannon Mills, I can't remember what it's called. But we'd play there every week. And so that was Tuesday and Wednesday, sorry. That would stay at Vincenzo's on Tuesday night because we had the gig the next day. We'd miss school on the Wednesday. 
<laughs> practice. And then, um, you know, we picked up gigs here and there. So he's playing like all the time in different towns and Glasgow. I met up with some people there, I was playing there and having to go and play, take the train back. And because I lived in Wester Hills, the bus never went to Wester Hills. So I had to get a train at half past 11, get to Edinburgh at half past 12, get a bus to Longstone and then walk half an hour in the dark through all these schemes of the saxophone. And that would, you know, then I have to go to school the next day. Um, so, you know, that's why I've got big shoulders carrying that box. <laughs> Did you um, realize at the time that none of that was normal? And by that, I mean, you, in two years, you went from having this instrument to being able to play and gig. I was going to say with adults, but that it doesn't matter who with. Did you realize that, that that's not normal? No, because nobody tells you that you're impoverished until you, you're older. And now you're telling me now, and, I, and on reflection, yeah, that was, that was pretty screwed up, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to be able to do that in two years, for me, I just, I don't know if it's, if it's nature, if it's serendipity, but... No, it's you. just determination and practice. I mean, if, you, if you've got nothing else to do, then, and you've got focus, and you've got a mathematical mind, I guess. I might have had that from my real father. Um, it's pretty easy if, if you're, you know, kind of dogmatic about wh where you want to go. And, and, and like to answer your question that you, I was trying to get to that point, but it was taking a long time. So at the age of 14, um, after we had won this competition, there was a summer. And I remember during that summer, I practiced every day, like all day. And that's when it clicked for me in my mind, um, all the, because the, I'd learned all the scales and every key and all the harmonies, all the usual stuff. And it just really clicked. There was no bar lines for me or brick walls between this and that. And, and uh, that's when I took a really big leap um, at that point. Um, and I remember that really clearly because it became easier to play. Up to that point, it was really tough, right. very challenging, very difficult to feel the time, know where you are in the form. Concentration was all over the place. But then I remember that time, it was just like a click. And my dad had taken me to see a few concerts. My first one was the Buddy Rich Big Band as wow. a kid, probably about 12 in the Playhouse. And um, I was sitting in the front row or the second row. And I remember the power when they started to play it almost blew a hole in my chest. It was like, yeah, big band started to play. I was, and I was like this. Well, <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Cause obviously um, once you got the sax and you were doing lots and loads of practice and then lots of rehearsing and then lots of gigging, were, were the gigs that you were going to at that point, were, the, were you going to lots of gigs yeah. around about the same time as well? So that was all feeding in at the same time as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd always sit in the front row and I'd go to the Queen's Hall, I'd go by myself, 13 years old, 14 years old, I'd sit right in the front row, I'd go and see George Coleman, and Wynton Marsalis, and um, Illinois Jacquette. Oh, uh, wow. All the usual UK bands that would come up. Um, the guy with so, the hat, he looks like he's a hunter, Hannibal, Hannibal Peterson, or Hannibal the Cannibal, Hannibal somebody, trumpet so, player. So really would, would your mum or your stepdad just drop you off? 
No, I'd take the bus, number 33. I'd walk down to the bus, I'd get the bus, and I'd, and I'd go and uh, go to the gig, the Queen's Hall. So it would actually pass the gig. It would take about an hour or something, but I'd go there. And I'd sit in the front row, right in the front, and I'd look at their hands and what they were doing. And so Archie Shep, watch Illinois Jacquette play Ramanite on the bassoon. Wow. Archie Shep band would come out, they'd play giant steps for like 15 minutes and he wouldn't even be on stage yet. And then he'd walk out with his hat on and <laughs> he'd play. And then I'd watch Wynton Marsalis of Brantford and Payne and Kenny Kirkland and Robert Hurst III. And, you know, all these gigs just go in and yeah. just totally be inspired, go away and, you know, and I'd always go up and get their, can you give me your autograph, you know, like a, a real uh, groupie. See, Alex, you know, you know, I was saying that the Barrowlands was my my favourite venue, but I probably learned more going to the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh than than anywhere else. And I was the same, Tommy. I, you know, I, and I was, I was going, kind of, early nineties. It was when Assembly Direct were doing loads of loads of stuff, and and you know, probably, um, similar to to when you were my age at that time. Um, so McCoy Tyner was coming across, and um, big band. I think he just played solo. Solo, right? Great. Yeah, he just played solo. Um, Brian Kellogg supported him, um, but you know John Ray Collective a lot, a lot, and um, Andy Shepherd and Steve Swallow and Carla Blay playing, and just kind of blew my mind because I, I I was only hearing it once a week on Humphrey Littleton's show. Um, mm. And that was my fix, and then I would go out and maybe buy a buy a record or whatever. But that was the only the only real chance that I got to see see live music. So yeah, Queen's Hall had a massive part to play. Um, so, great Tommy, venue. you've yeah. you've had the such a concentrated two or three years there. Was it was it all jazz? Was it, or, or was there a moment where nothing else? Nothing. It, no classical. Really? No folk. No rock. No pop. Pure jazz. 100%. And has that, has that lasted through your life as well? No, no. Of course, I've had to listen to other forms of music because I'm interested in them. But in my household, there was two kinds of music. There was my mom's music and my stepfather's music. And my stepfather's music was Sinatra, Gene Krupa. I mean, I've got... I mean, Do you say Gene Krupa? Gene Krupa, yeah. Yes, like, brilliant. Jerry Mulligan. Ah. Uh... Fletcher Henderson, yeah, Dizzy Gillespie, Big Band, wow, uh, Lee Connett. Oh, I've got that one. Yeah. <laughs> to the listener, that. Tommy's actually shown us these oh, albums, perfect. and they're all original vinyls as well. And they're tiny little ones, you know. They're, 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 they're these small forty-fives. Uh, Poor Game Best of Miles. Miles oh, David. nice! Wow. Um, Lionel Hampton. That and is you know, an the, amazing one collection. Of the first records that it, it was a big record, the LP, the long player, was Stan Getz a go go, and on that record was Gary Burton. And I used to wow. learn Stan Getz, his playing. I was a big fan, and I didn't realize that at the age of thirteen, fourteen, listening to that record, that I'd be playing with a guy on the record when I was eighteen. So yeah. That was a really weird kind of thing to think, you know. Uh, I wasn't really listening to the vibes, I was listening to the saxophone. You know? <laughs> yes.
So when did Berkeley happen for you then? What 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 age were you then? Um, I was sixteen. Although I applied when I was fifteen, I saw the brochure in a friend's uh, house. It was actually John Ray's uh, dad, Ronnie Ray. They had uh, the brochure on on the table. And he's I, a bass. He's a bassist, isn't he? Yeah, Ronnie's bassist and. Yeah. And Tommy, can you explain uh, Berkeley for for any of our listeners who who are not aware? Can you explain uh, oh, exactly yes, what, what that definitely. is, please? So, um, I was looking through this brochure, and it had this curriculum, which is really extensive. And um, I never really read books when I was a kid. I read the jazz book, Improvising Jazz, and anything to do with jazz, but I didn't read anything else. It was all music. <laughs> and so I was looking through this book, and uh, there's pictures of all my heroes who were actually doing master classes at the school or there was a class on them and I got totally excited about this place I was like I have to go here and so I applied I just did a radio show for uh, BBC called Take the Jazz Train with my it was with my quintet by then I daddy the guitar player and we played um, some Coltrane and Benny Golson and some Bill Evans I remember so I'd sent I sent the the, the tape uh, in an application to Berkeley and while I was waiting I remember getting a phone call from a guy called uh, Dave Pringle who was a TV producer and you know we had a phone believe it or not in Wester Hills and hot and cold water sometimes <laughs> and the uh, the guy came on the phone and said hey would you would you like to uh, play a tune on on our TV show and I went sure who, who's who am I playing with and and they said well you're going to play with a Danish bass player called Neil Sanding Oster Pedersen, a Norwegian drummer called Jon Christensen, uh, English uh, Flemish guitarist Philip Katrine, and an English piano player Gordon Beck. And I went, fantastic, because I knew most of those players. And I went to the studio, which is in, uh, in north of uh, Leith, Leith Walk, called The Gateway. And they had told me I was going to get 75 pounds for this one tune. And for wow. me, I was playing on a Tuesday, I got five pounds. And on a Wednesday, I got eight pounds. And the band, we all got the same money. And I would use that money for bus fares, for saxophone reads, and for L albums. And so when he said that, that kind of money, I was like, my God, this is like a, a gold mine. I can buy so many more records and so <laughs> many more reads, you know? So I, I went to the studio and I went in and I heard the saxophone player playing and I was just just like unbelievable player. I was like, wow, who's that? So I went up to this guy, he's much taller than me and um, my, my mom had got me a secondhand jacket to wear on the show because I never had any, you know, jacket, never wore a jacket. And That's so I had this really strange thing on and I went up to him <laughs> and said, hey, who are you? And he, and he, he looked down and he said, Hi, my name is Michael Brecker. And I went, Michael Brecker, so great to meet you. And uh, I'd nev never heard of Michael Brecker. And so he heard me play, uh, I chose to play a ballad. I didn't chose to play a fast tune like most young kids who play a fast tune and show their chops and all that stuff. I chose to play a ballad uh, to see if I could show my sound and phrasing and emotion. Mm -hmm. and all that. So I chose Autumn in New York. And then um, I got to sit in the front row with no audience because it was televised just for TV and hear Michael Brecker play Oleo and Take a Walk and Jarrett's Chorale. 
And wow. I was I was just like, I've never heard anybody play like that before. And so yeah. that was like, wow. So I took his autograph and his address and we became friends and started writing. And I would send him stuff and he's such a, a nice guy, really beautiful gentleman. And, uh, but there were other people that would come there. There was Toot Steelman, there was Kenny Wheeler, uh, Arrow Anderson's group. And nobody in Edinburgh saw them. It was all hush-hush for TV. And it went out on TV. And it was a shame there was no audience because, I mean, come on. All these mm. people come to Edinburgh and nobody, nobody sees the live music. I was like, I was, in retrospect, I was really shocked. But obviously, at the time, I, I was very happy to be involved. And anyway, I got a letter back from Berkeley. And he said, we're going to give you a scholarship because we listened to your tape. And another a scholarship, a Phil Woods Award. And uh, this is how much you have left to pay. And I was like, what? <laughs> I can't afford any of that. You know, so my music teacher, um, I actually had gone to another school uh, from Wester Hills for a short period. I went to Broughton High School um, because they had a music unit, which meant I could drop some school subjects and concentrate on music. But nice. it was a classical place. And so... I dropped subjects, sure, but you know, then I had to play classical piano, flute, clarinet, sing in the choir. You got to be kidding me! I'm a young jazz guy. I don't want to learn any of that. <laughs> so um, I got I get this letter from um, Berkeley, and 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 they just look at it and kind of sniff in the wind and can't help me one teeny weeny bit. No uh, heart, no soul. Just oh well blah 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 so i left i mean i took up sticks and i said i'm leaving this joint and i'm going back to wester hills so i did i went back to the other school and uh i went to my music teacher gene allison and said look um i need to try and raise some money somehow so uh we started to write letters and when i was a kid obviously i wanted to be an artist and i could i'd really beautiful handwriting but i was really bad at english i mean i didn't know how to spell or punctuate or because I never read any books but I could copy really well so I had this gorgeous handwriting <laughs> but it didn't make any sense <laughs> um, so the teacher wrote the letter for me and I copied it out and I signed it and we made copies and we sent it to uh, Sean Connery's uh, International Education Trust and we got a thousand pounds from that that foundation and we got a thousand pounds from Radio 4th um, and my community, my primary school did a sponsored silence for three hours. I mean, imagine a primary school not speaking for three hours. Yeah. That is amazing. So they raised like 600 quid. Wow. All the neighbors would put their, their hand in their pocket, you know, 20 pence here, five pounds there, 10 pounds there. And um, there was a couple of concerts in Glasgow and in Edinburgh and that kind of started growing and we got to six and a half thousand quid and so it wasn't until i was 16 that i got to uh go to berkeley but before i went i managed to make two albums <laughs> believe it or not so I, I i experienced my first um engagement with a record company which was called gfm records the guy had heard me playing in a vegetarian restaurant in uh edinburgh in glasgow i remember called hallabies i was i was headhunted by 
a guy called Bill Kyle, who's a drummer, and he asked me to be in his band, New York Jazz. We would tour all over the UK and play with these New Yorkers, and we were playing in this place, and this guy comes up to me, hey man, I want to sign you to my label, and, and whatever. And I was 15 years old at the time, and so I got the contract, and I, the piano player in the band was a lawyer, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> I showed up this contract, and, and, and the first thing he said to me, do not sign this contract. <laughs> really? Um, so um, I didn't sign it. Um, apparently, it was to tie me down for five years. There was like no deal, no uh, what they call remuneration. What a surprise. Um, so I did the record, and the guy stole my publishing for my original composition. I was very much into writing music, um, so I wrote a, a tune on that one uh, and I never got paid not a penny and uh, so that was my first engagement with you know the thieves in the record industry so that was the oh, first okay. record and I did another record that year with Bill Kyle and his band but we were all friends and nobody was getting paid and we we're all doing it just to get something out there but yeah. those records were really instrumental in, in in getting my name out there throughout the UK because I, I recorded trio with no piano or guitar so it's pretty avant-garde for a kid to not use a harmonic instrument and you know the arrangements were quite quite slick i mean i was just basically just blowing my head off every time i played although when i played carolina in the morning carolina in the morning it was very soft and you know sensual and and beyond my years they say you know the people who were criticizing it, although a lot of critics can't tell the difference between me and Levano or whoever. They'll hear two saxophone mm. players and they go, well, Smith's one of them. You know, if you can't <laughs> tell who's who, how can you be a critic, you know? Were, were, you, were you finding that there was quite a, a few people coming to see you play live because they were intrigued by seeing a 15, 16-year-old? I have no idea. Um, were you aware of that being a sort of thing? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I know that we tried to record every gig we did and we listened back that evening to hear what we did to see if we could learn not to do that again or learn from Listen it. back straight away? Oh, yeah, that night. Absolutely. Wow. Listen back straight away. So listen to the whole gig and listen to the evolution of the solos, the interplay, the whole thing. And that that is a big thing to do. You don't just play and think, well, that was great. You've got to listen to the evidence. You can't just go on a dream world and think you're good when you're <laughs> by listening to, I've, I've got all these tapes, I mean, from playing in these things. You've kept them all. I've got them all. I've got them all. They're all like over there. And is that is that an excuse, excuse me if this is an ignorant question, is that something that you still occasionally do? Or all the Did time? Oh, I did it today. Yeah, I do it. You, you listen it back to a, a live performance you played, and you're listening and listening for where you. Yeah, well, can I, I recorded myself there. today. You've got to do it. You you have to do it to check things because being a a saxophone player is being like a sports. It's like being an athlete, and you have to train for certain events, and you have to train different ways. So Brilliant. you know when I have something coming up. I got to really look at what exactly is needed and I got to work in that direction. And I've, I've got to 
experiment. I got to check everything. So it's all all the fundamentals, it's sound, intonation, vibrato, technique, and all that stuff. But um, I practice a lot of fundamentals because my my whole uh, concept of improvisation, which comes from Gary Burton, is very different from a lot of players. So I don't focus on stuff that other people would. I focus on um, the basics, the fundamentals, because I don't want to play thousands of cliches. That's not improvisation. That's just exerting something you already know. That's not fun. That's not interesting. Yeah. Not, yeah. not magic. Anyway, to get back to your early question about Berkeley, I still haven't answered it. And it's still here. <laughs> you have to I'm loving this. About Berkeley. So, Berkeley, um, when I finally got there, um, 16 years old, I had my duffel coat. I had my uh, my tenor, which is in a red rhino bag. I had a soprano, which I bought for thirty pounds. And apparently, this cat had pissed in the cage, in the case, <laughs> when I bought it. So I had to wash the whole thing in the bath with soapy water. I remember having a soprano washing the whole thing because it was just it was stinking like you can't believe. And I had a flute, like a cheap. Uh, 10 pound flute with the pads falling out and stuff and, and my saxophone wasn't uh, you know it was pretty well practiced I mean my, I used to play the school saxophone which is called the Carton uh, sorry Carlton and I called it the Carton because um, things would fall <laughs> off it so the, ne the, the neck thing would f jump off and the F sharp key would fly off on a gig Brilliant. and I'd have to like use tape to tape up the hole and um so I, when i went to berkeley i had those three instruments and my one suitcase and my my duffel coat and i arrived in in the dead of winter and i remember getting this taxi ride the guys swerve along all around the road a big black guy smoking a cigar and who are you off to and and i was just like was i watching the tv show and uh, <laughs> i got to berkeley didn't know anybody didn't know anything um and basically i had to sleep the first night i was staying in the dorms which were, were basically part of the school so you had the whole school infrastructure all the classes and oh the labs and ensembles and then above you had the dormitories like six floors of dorms so i, I didn't need to go out to get to school so i went up to my room room 206 and there was no blankets or pillow they give you your sheets once a week, like in prison. And so I had um, a pillowcase and two sheets, but I had no pillow and I had no blanket. Brilliant. Bring your own or buy your own. So I slept that first night stuffing my clothes into the pillowcase and my duffel coat just like freezing away. And the next day I, I went out and tried to find some cheap uh, blanket and a pillow. Um, but at Berkeley, um, the very first week you have to audition. So I remember the audition very well because we had um, one of the best saxophone players on the planet. He was in the panel, a guy called George Garzon. So he was on the panel with two other guys and I came in and I'd already been around the building and um, I mean they cater for um, many students, so about 2,000 students, uh, 500 teachers, massive place. And the, the level is very high. And I remember going around these practice rooms, listening to saxophone players practice. And I was just like gasping at the <laughs> little window on the door going, oh, my God, how can they play like that? You know, and just like freaking out, you know, just like getting really excited. So I went to my audition and I remember playing 
uh, my first tune with the, the band there. And uh, my, one of my pads fell out my saxophone, like the D key I was playing, and, and the, the pad just fell out on the floor, you know. <laughs> so, like, I said, sorry, kids. kids. Anybody got any, any sellotape? And so they gave me some sellotape, and I sellotaped it back in and continued the audition. Because um, they want to uh, find out about you. So they want to find out if you're musical, if you can improvise, if you can read, and if you have a, a good sound. And they give you numbers for each of those elements. And then you use those numbers to get into the, the band. So if you want to be in the avant-garde ensemble with George Garzon, you need to have seven for improvisation and zero for reading because you don't use music, but you need to have seven and seven, you know. So mm. I got all sevens and I could get into any band, I remember. And so I was in 10 bands like that. But the saxophone that I took to uh, Berkeley, it wasn't my school saxophone that I had in Wester Hills. It was a saxophone that um, the Princess Trust had given me. So I, uh, my school and my family had applied to uh, the Princess Trust, and they gave me 400 pounds, 500 pounds to buy uh, a saxophone. So that's that's the saxophone that I took to, to school um, over there. And uh, it eventually got stolen, but that's another story. But the, the school itself is, um, you know, it's an amazing, inspirational place. And on the corner of each floor in the dorms above the, the school teaching area, you have practice rooms. And the practice rooms are open not from this time to this time, they're open 24-7, right? And yeah. this is the ideology I like, practice any time you want. So yeah. we, we would practice, first of all, you go to our classes 9 till 5, you break for something to eat, and it's 6 to 8, 8 to 10, 10 to 12, you have three sessions, which you had to stand in line to book. So if you had a group, you'd have, say you had a group of the trio, each of you would take a turn to stand in that line for that time. And so you go <laughs> midnight, and then after midnight, you would play, go and practice until three or four in the morning. And you weren't the only one. There was mm. plenty of other people practicing. As well. I'm, I'm serious, not just you. So you know you're in a competitive environment to try and get as good as you possibly can. far from um, Boston city center was it or was it actually in in Boston itself yeah it's in Boston it's right across the river from Harvard MIT yeah. and uh, it's round the corner from the Scientology building so you got to watch out there yeah and uh, downtown Boston you know it's just a short walk but you're right in the heart of it but you know I never went anywhere I, I'm guessing that you had so many visiting musicians anyway that you didn't really need to go to the the, the jazz clubs in 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 Boston itself or oh no you we, we did go to the jazz clubs that's yeah. definitely one thing we did do we we went to the willow to hear Jerry Bergonzi and my teacher George Garzon play trio and blow their brains out that was brilliant and then we, that's like once a week on a Wednesday I think 
and we'd go and see um you know i remember the first time i saw david liebman i was 16 and i was in the front row again and i thought i'd just witnessed the devil play the saxophone it was like so evil and dark and you know richie byrag playing all those hybrid chords it was the energy was just you know it freaked me out um seeing that live and i remember seeing pat Metheny playing a small club um because at berkeley uh, when when a big name was going to play a club, nobody ever it was net wasn't advertised because it would just be inundated. So somebody, somebody would say uh, Dave Holland and Jack Dijonette and Pat Metheny is going to play at at Riles tonight, and you go okay, and you <laughs> get right down there. Yeah, and you see these amazing players just like preparing for an album or preparing for a tour. They just want to do a gig with like screaming students or you go and see but they'd, they'd know that they were going to get the right kind of audience they'd get a knowledgeable articulate and you know educated jazz educated audience to to you know bear their their stuff to yeah that's right and and we 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 showed appreciation not like some of the british educated audiences who just go hmm i think i know better yeah. <laughs> <laughs> american audiences are like yeah you know like really i mean they're very different from any other audience american audience they could be a bit superficial maybe a little bit obsequious in their um you know portrayal of how good that actually was as it's going along documenting the the curvaceous contour of the solo whereas in in the uk it's like silence I can your feather. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to give you a big head, laddie. <laughs> they can be quite tribal as well, I think. Um, uh, British jazz fans, they can be quite kind of no, absolutely nothing, nothing after 1955. Well, that's their loss. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. So can I assume then, Tommy? Then it sounds like that even through uh, Berkeley, going to live gigs, to jazz gigs, was was still very important. So going to listen to live music was oh, still it was important. Like, it was the, the best thing. I would go down to New York um, during, um, they called it midterm. And in midterm, I didn't know this, but you get kicked out of school for a week or two weeks. And, and I didn't have anywhere to stay because nobody told me that. And I, you know, I was staying in the dorms, but the dorms get closed. And I'm like, well, where am I going to go? Oh, they actually close the dorms, do they? Yeah. So close the dorms. So I, um, I talked to some of my friends. I'd say, well, well, what do you think I should do? And so you know, you get lots of offers. You can come and stay with me, or you can go there. So I had one friend, this big black guy, alto player, guy called Aaron Spencer. We used to hang hang out and play jam sessions. He said, why don't you come to New York? My dad lives above a jazz club. And I went, fantastic. Wow. So we got on the bus. This Greyhound bus paid, you know, a few dollars and took an overnight or so it was really cheap and, and ended up in New York in the morning and went to his dad's uh, studio flat. And he, his dad lived way down, I think on fourth or fifth street or canal street or somewhere like that. And we got, we got there and I never been to New York. So I was 16, I was still 16. And I was looking, <laughs> looking up at these buildings. That is incredible. So get a creak in my neck. Cause it was just, I was like, wow. And it was quite quiet at that time in the morning. There's like hardly anybody around. It's quite eerie. It's like a zombie nation or something. <laughs> and uh, so he, Aaron, he presses the buzzer and uh, the door opens. We go up to the first 
uh, flight, and I see there's a jazz club underneath. So there's the, the black, blacked-out windows, and there's a jazz. I'm like, I said, jazz, yes. His dad lives above a jazz club. So we went in there, um, up the stairs, and then there was a big metal door with, um, like, chains on the outside and, and some holes. And, and the holes are actually bullet holes. And, mm. and the guy... What? His dad used one of the bullet holes to, you know, peer through, and then he opened the door. And his dad was even bigger than, than Aaron, a guy called Spencer. He had completely bald, no hair, big black guy, quite scary looking. And I went in, and the, it was just one big room. And I remember on the right side, there was like two big windows, uh, a wooden floor, like racks of clothes on, on, on racks, like you see in a, a store, and, and instruments lying all over the place, piano, saxophone, cases here. And then on the left, there was like this big, long table. And the table uh, had bags of stuff. And there was a, 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 a young woman there, uh, like measuring this white powder on with a razor blade into envelopes. So there was a big okay. bag of green stuff. There was like pills and all sorts of stuff. And the phone was going um, all the time. And it was like, hey, Spence, man, I need a fix. Can you, can I come? And I was like, suddenly it dawned on me that this guy was a drug dealer. Like pretty, you know, intense one. And so uh, my friend's father basically just said, help yourself. You know, take what you like. And because of the way I grew up, um, you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. Never tried a cigarette. Never had a girlfriend. It's all music. And so I went, uh, no thanks. But can I have a shirt, please? <laughs> 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 so I, got, I took a shirt. And um, so I, had to li I had to live in this place for a week, sleeping on the floor with my coat. Now, of course, I was used to sleeping with my coat, but not on a hard wooden floor. Um, but anyway, uh, these musicians started to appear. One of, one of them was Jacob Astorius, and he would basically come up every day, play the piano, uh, carried his uh, word of mouth big band music in a carrier bag. Wow. Got, got talking with him, became quite friends, talked about Glasgow, and you know, he always shook your hand like a, a Cherokee Indian. And. Um, was it was a very nice guy i thought of course he was he was getting uh drugs from my friend's dad but um he he invited me to play probably just because i was friends with his his, his dealer um but i got to play the blue note with jack Astorius playing you know, donna lee and dolphin dance and mercy 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 and we got to play seventh avenue south uh, you know and it, like typical movie thing so there'd be a big line out the door and I'd go with my friend and his dad and we'd go up to the very front of the queue and we'd get the front table yeah. like, like in the movies like the scene from Goodfellas yep and then we get to play with the band and I have I have I have tapes of this as well I've got tapes of me playing really, really? badly with with Jacko and uh you know Kenwood Dinar oh, another gig was with Rashi Ali the drummer played with train they say in life sometimes oh i was too young to appreciate it were you too young to appreciate what was going on or did you understand i was scared to be there i mean i was I looking bet. out the window quite often thinking the place was going to get raided i mean i was totally aware of what was going on here
And uh, at nighttime, when the club was open downstairs, and there'd be just people jamming. I mean, it was really the height of musicians out of their minds. Um, there'd be a lot of uh, wheeling and dealing. Uh, the smell of cannabis was all over the shop. And it, I, th I thought it was quite, quite scary. And, and Mike Stern lived the floor above. Yeah. And he was out of it. I mean, he wasn't clean then. Um, I mean, he's clean as a whistle now. I mean, you you wouldn't you wouldn't. Uh, he's like a he's like a saint. You know, he's he always says I, I did enough to last to, to to fill you know several lifetimes. And so <laughs> he, he's like he swims every day. He doesn't do anything. But in those days, he was pretty hardcore. Well, I suppose in in early early what was this eighty two eighty three eighty three eighty three. Yeah. So I mean, New York is not was not the New York that we know now. Um, and they had a lot of problems, you know. Um, so yeah, I can imagine that at that that time it would be a bit of a for for someone who hadn't even hit twenty yet. Exactly. That that's why I asked. You know, at sixteen, did you really? Uh, and I mean, away from that specific incident, going to Blue Note and playing with these wonderful musicians, you know, at sixteen, that's just. That's incredible. That's incredible. But you know, for for these local musicians playing at the Blue Notes, like playing at a bar in Glasgow, it's not a big deal right. for people from the outside, like me. It's a huge deal. But for them, yeah. they're relaxed. It's just the local joint. It's not anything to be made, uh, you know, to be built up. Yeah. So, um, you 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 have the most incredible story that, uh, and we've just. Oh, this is the, only half of it, man. There's yeah, worse things than this. Gotten <laughs> to the age of sixteen. We're going we we are going to take you to what we call the quick fire round, and I've got to admit, it's very difficult for Chris or I to to make this quick fire because <laughs> we keep asking more questions. Quick fire, okay. We're, we're, we're going to give it... I'll, I'll give you the answers in advance. Yes, no, yes, yes, no. Is that okay? Wow. That's like a paradiddle. <laughs> I did not expect that answer for number four there. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the first question, um, your favorite voice, your favorite vocalist uh, live? Well, it has to be Jasmine Horn and Kurt Elling. So both female and male, I like those two uh, musicians live on Standing. I can't. I can't. I can't give one to the other because they're representing uh, both sexes, and we need both. So, no, fair play. That, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Who is your favorite musician to watch live? Dead or alive? Ooh. I, but because you've said that now, that that to me, you're going to say two answers. So I, I both, please. Both. Well, for me, uh, the, the the dead is John Coltrane because yeah. I'm watching everything. I'm watching how he taps his foot, how he breathes, how he moves, his position on the microphone, his concentration. His, I mean, it's you're watching everything, and that's yeah, that's yeah. why I love to watch uh, Coltrane um, live because there's so much to watch. Um, I, I just wish there was more footage um, of him so you could really study how he was on stage because I didn't get a chance to uh, hear him. I was born in 67 and he died in 67. So there was no way I was ever going to see him. No. Um, yeah. And in live, a person living, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it has to be, it has to be Keith Jarrett and, and Winter Marsalis and Chick Corea. I mean, he's dead now, but Gary Burton, those, those, those people who can really inspire you. I mean, uh, yeah. um, I mean, it's really difficult to pinpoint 
anyone. Um, but a jazz musician, would it would probably be, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, we play lots of festivals and, and what we tend to do um, is hear other bands play. And it's one of the, our favorite things to do. It's not just to play the festivals, but to check out people that we haven't uh, heard before. Because, uh, you know, the, uh, one of our mottos is, it's not who you know, it's who you don't know that's important. So we'll go and check out a band and, and no one's ever heard. And you'll check out them from the side of the stage, not from the front. So you can get to feel their synergy and their interplay. So one of the best bands before I knew them was, was like Wayne Krantz, the guitar player. And I went to sit, stand at the side of the stage. And because we're artists, we can just stand and, you know, with Steve Gadd or whoever, we can just stand and check the whole gig out from a different perspective which is always cool but hearing Wayne Kranz for the the first time it was like this blew my mind because they could change tempo without any direction it was like completely in the music and I that was a big lesson for me how can they do that you know and it, and it made you feel so good when it went to a new tempo I mean it just made you feel good um, obviously, slowing down and getting faster, those are two other ways of changing tempo, but not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this could possibly have two different answers. So um, your favorite ever gig. So favorite gig as a, as a performer, what was the best gig that you ever played? Um, and favorite gig that you've been to? Favorite gig I've ever played? Um, hopefully it'll be my one in Litchfield Cathedral in July. Although <laughs> <laughs> um, that's me being the sportsman. I'm like working towards that gig. Um, it's a me, difficult question. That is there one maybe that w where you felt it was just the best it could be because y you know. No, it's 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 rather difficult. It's like saying it's like saying to you guys, um, you know, what's the best sex you've ever had, and tell me when when that was. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's impossible to answer because you've got so many great moments in your in your uh, experience. And I'm 54 now, so I've played loads of gigs with loads of people in very <laughs> great venues and very rubbish venues and. And, and in some weird venues in caves in the middle of a river i mean just weird things and you remember all these aspects but to remember the the best you know sometimes the worst gig is the best gig uh if you listen to the recording because the mind can be diverted because of other conditions it actually puts you in a better focus so it's it just depends i mean the i can tell you the worst gig no that was problem. that was the next question that's the next question <laughs> Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I would say that the, the place I, I would never want to play again is like St. Ives, like a jazz club like that. It's just a horrible venue, you know, and it gets voted the best venue. I don't see how that can be a, a great venue. It's a terrible. So venue. What, what is it that makes it, um, makes it so, well, not your cup of tea? What, well, what it's is a combination it? between the acoustics and the way you're treated. So if you're treated like shit, uh, as an artist, then I mean you're not going to enjoy the the uh, the process. Um, my favorite venue would be you know just like a pub, like the Blue Lamp in Aberdeen. Um, you know it's nothing special, but the 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 audience and the vibe from the people hiring you it's so great. 
you want to play. You want to play really your best. But there are some people who just, they, they want to put you down before you've played a note. And those kind of people, they shouldn't be promoters because they, they don't have what it takes. Mm -hmm. And so for people like that to be voted best venue, it, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that. It's a shame. And people do, you know, you get good promoters, you get, get good venue owners, and it makes the difference. And it makes the difference, doesn't it? You, the, the next question genuinely is strangest gig. And I want to know about the river playing. I, I want to know about the cave. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I, I first got into Gary Burton's band, I was 18, and, and we were playing a, a gymnasium where they would you know, do boxing matches. So it was humongous and the stairs were going like up until you couldn't see them into infinity. And Gary Burton said to me, uh, Tommy, in this kind of place, you, you want to play less. You want to play less notes. Less notes because the sound travels and you want to be clear about your statements. And I was like, okay. So I'm there playing as little as possible with big gaps and then it comes to his solo and he plays the same as he always does. Zillions of notes. Well, stitched you up. Wait a minute, he stitched me up. <laughs> stitched me up right there. I was just going to ask you about um, venues. You're talking about what makes a bad a bad venue. Um, what do you think, I mean, what would your favourite venue be or, or what what makes a good venue really good? Well, it's the audience uh, and the promoter. And, you know, the, the other stuff is icing on the cake. So, you know, the piano, is it in tune? Is it is it warm in the room? Is it below... 10 degrees you're going to be playing flat um you know we we, we don't ask for much you know it's not like miles davis <laughs> a big writer asking for wine at this degrees in the mirror at this angle and this kind of thing and all that um it's pretty straightforward so but do you still have do you still have the odd venue and it uh, you know because you are so well traveled are there still a few venues around the world that you think if we're going on tour and i'm near i've got to play that venue um well in like in oslo if you play at victoria that's that's a plus but in norway the the whole system and infrastructure for uh improvised music is so well put together you can do a gig in the arctic circle for seven people and get paid the same money as you would to 300 people in a club in oslo so wow. you know you you take the effort to travel there which takes a couple of planes at a big long ride and then you get to someone's attic the turned into a, a venue and there's like seven people and you never i mean we always say you never know who's in the audience so we play the same as we we would play in a in a small theater in oslo um but they they do have a great infrastructure and their audience is 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 amazing um but japan is incredible too i mean they, it's a different kind of audience but really playing in japan is so amazing um and all over and what Europe, kind of venues do they have in in japan um every kind like so they've got a tiny little avant-garde place where they only do like way out stuff or they've got yeah blue note blue note clubs so it's all different levels of venues depending on your stature so um i i, I was supposed to do a big tour with makoto zoni last year and duo and that, that got cancelled we were playing very very big venues like my big band did um the year before so the s and went to japan and we played 2000 seat venues packed auditorium we had a japanese actor and uh you know it was a great experience um and be the the couple of years before that I played the the clubs with Arold anderson and makoto um and 
that's like another level but still you looked after so well and respected i mean of course people can treat you well but they don't mean it um and in japan um you never know but it feels sincere uh it's it's when you get to venues and they're just like they're assholes and you're like what the hell did i come all the way here for if you're just gonna you know be like that i mean we're not trying to be i'm not i'm never nasty to anyone um, but to get that kind of, and it does happen a few times. You're like, what is? It? So I, you just you never play there. You know, if if I was asked to play at a venue yeah. for a million quid, I didn't like. I would just wouldn't do it because I don't play for money. Never have. You know, I don't grow up uh, playing all over the country, sleeping on people's floors, not thinking about money and only music to play for people who disrespect you. So um, so with that then. And it's sort of slightly off kilter. You've mentioned there that you've played at 2,000, you know, uh, attendance venues, but also to, to seven people in a Norwegian attic. Yep. Do, you, do you prefer having a huge audience or would you rather see the whites of their eyes? Do you like those um, intimate Well, gigs? obviously, being a jazz musician, you're not going to get the big, big audiences that often. And when yeah. you get them, they're a great experience. So like when we played for 11,000 people in Montreal Jazz Festival, the power of that, and, and I was speaking French to them um, in their own language, the power of that is just insane. And you, you yeah. kind of get addicted to it uh, because if you embrace an audience in their own language and and, and tell a story through the the songs um they just come on board and they go nuts and that makes the musicians play even better so you know the power of the big audience is great but also playing in a small club with the acoustics that that they have and that energy too is great as well but of course being a jazz musician you're going to get more of the small uh effect rather than the the large effect but some jazz musicians can't you know, make the bold strokes that you need on a large stage in front of many, many people. Right. You need to really make big, big gestures. You've got to talk slowly. It's got to be really energetic. You're projected on screens. I mean, it's a different ballgame. You need to practice what you're going to say, just like you would when you play, playing the different themes and written melodies. You practice that stuff. You've got to practice what you say and you know, make it, make it happen. You just don't go and go to a microphone and improvise what you're going to say in a big thing like that because no. it's yeah. going to fall flat. Listen, Tommy, I think we've got a couple of questions left because um, you've been very generous with your time so far. Thank you. Um, um, the second last question was, when when all this lockdown finishes, who would you recommend we go and see live that might have gone under our radar? Where do you live? <laughs> we, we are going to travel, let me tell yeah, you, Tommy. That so, doesn't matter. <laughs> We're you, in Manchester UK. and Salford, but... Manchester is the band of the wall uh, going to come back strong? Or are you? Yeah, it's been refurbed at the moment, so um, it's going to be opening in the autumn, and yeah, 
can't can't wait to get back in that place. Yeah, I used to I used to like playing there when Ian Crow was the manager. Like when I was younger, we used to play every year, and uh, it was always a a great gig to go to Swan Street and play Band on the Wall, and then wait for the cash to be picked up from down beneath the stage in a very low, <laughs> big green vault. By the way, that's where the money is. Um, or what? <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was it was always good to. I mean, I very. I think I've only played there once in a, a blue moon. That was with the Arl Anderson trio. That's the one I photographed. Where I met you, Chris, and you yeah. photographed you photographed my biceps. Apparently, um, one of one of the people that that worked for me said, "I didn't know you had biceps." I said, "I don't have biceps." Wow, <laughs> Chris stopped. No, I was Chris, I need you to take photos of me then, Chris, if you can make me look like I got biceps. No, I know. <laughs> if you're playing a saxophone, everything gets uh, augmented. So your veins in your <laughs> neck, your veins in your face, the, your muscles on your forearms, it all gets augmented. So it, it's kind of a different reality. You, you look pretty flat otherwise. <laughs> in fact, when, when you think about the live, that, that question about live... I'd like to ask you as someone who has not grown up with jazz like Chris, and, and I'm only just educating myself. Give me one or two live artists that you think I should, I should go and see that would be a good, you know, sort of uh, education for me in catching up. Okay. Um, well, I'm a big fan of, of seeing bands who have a good sound technician. So, um, a lot of the Norwegian bands have a, an engineer who is as skillful as the, the players on stage. And therefore, right. when you go and hear them, especially if it's in a larger venue, you're going to hear a, a, a sonic balanced group and be like listening to a CD. The, the, yeah. the good engineers really mix it so well and they, they tour with the bands. We've had uh, many of these great engineers tour with us and it's it's the part of the band. They're the other member. Now, if you're going to hear um, someone at a club, like say you go to Dizzy's in New York and you play uh, that club that overlooks Central Park. I mean, it's an amazing setting and you get treated really well and the food's good and the acoustics are cool. And the sound engineer is a house engineer. And so you're a bit worried when you go in, you're like, because you, you don't usually use house engineers. Um, you have your own people there. Um, and you go in and they're great. You know, so that's a, that's the risk you take, um, and sometimes uh, sometimes they're not. Maybe maybe <laughs> they don't mix this kind of music. Maybe they mix rock music, so all the instruments are upside down. There's like too much bass drum. But anyway, bass drum could be good depending on the music, you know. Um, but yeah, I would recommend any Norwegian band with a sound engineer uh, first of all, and most of them tour with sound engineers. So any Norwegian band from Trigvi Siam. Um, uh, to even, you know, Arold, my friend Arold, he's got a few new groups now. Hearing Arold solo, incredible. The sound, not only is the sound going to be great, but his sound is just in incredible. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the sound is really important. Although when I'm, in, when I'm at a festival, I don't go to the PA side. I stand at the stage so I can hear just the acoustic uh, sound and, and a bit of the, the monitor sound. Yes. Uh, get that energy. Um, because you're, you're a bit closer and you can see the action. But um, good advice. Yeah, most of the gigs I've seen, 
personally of, of being on festivals and all at the side of the stage. Uh, I mean, I would rarely go from my house here in the, I live in the boonies in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing here. There's no street lights. There's no gas. There's no internet, like hard cable. There's no sewage. There's no, it's a one track road. There's no pub. There's nothing. It's basically a place where you can play saxophone really loud at any time of the night. It's like, um, but there's lots of great, if you, if you don't care about the sound, um, there's lots of great young bands coming out of Scotland who play, you know, exemplary. So you've got this, one of my students, Matt Carmichael, is a big saxophone player, about seven feet tall. He's really embraced the Scottish uh, folk tradition and, and, and put it right in the forefront of his music. So he, his music is very beautiful to listen to. And plus he can play the the repertoire the classic repertoire repertoire too so he's a really good foundation has he recorded yeah he he's got a a new record just give me a second i'll just pick it up he's got it there yeah so matt matt's got uh this is matt's here it's called where matt where michael rivers flow and right. so this, this is a, this is his uh, his debut record, and uh, his mum did the artwork. Really nice artwork. Yeah, I love that. But love you that. don't judge a record by its cover. I, well, I'm, I must say that the, the the title of that reminded me of. Um, so I photographed Paul Toundra's, um "Deepening the River." Yeah, river is the 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 the, the word of the month. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I negotiated that title, Where Rivers Meet, for about three weeks with Maria Rudd, the Russian artist, and uh, a writer, journalist, and professor from Brighton University who has written a book called Dreaming with Open Eyes and wrote the book on Jan Gavarek called Deep Song. And uh, he's a specialist in art and uh, ECM music especially. And so we were trying to come up with the title, um, Hello, Ayla. I'm still still on the interview here. Bye bye. So, um, what was I saying? Yeah. So it took three weeks to come to that decision. We went through every possible uh, alteration of the the ideas that we were going through, and uh, I had to make an executive decision based on some of the key elements, and it. And it ended up being something like, you know, my mum could understand. It wasn't too, you know, profound. And so it was where rivers meet. And then <laughs> Paul puts out his thing, Deepening the River. And then Matt puts out <laughs> where the river flow. And That's I'm like, oh brilliant. my God, this is just too much of a coincidence. That's three different types of uh, of um, jazz music from Scotland that you can you can listen to. Um, there we go. That's what I'm going and also Fergus McCready's uh, group uh, is really great, you know, with um, his new record, uh, Cairn. Um, Graham Costello, another uh, one of our students, uh, is a really great band. There's, I mean, all the young people, of course, have got their stuff going, but there's also a lot of old people sitting around playing too as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, talk about, you want to talk about the... The younger generation, and I know, I know the the older generation don't like me talking about the younger generation. In fact, a lot of them don't like me um, creating a jazz school because it's created a lot of, you know, possibilities. So, um, but yeah, they've they've got to 
have some assistance in their career as they're beginning. There are no big contracts out there anymore where they, they're going to get all that marketing money That's funneled right. into them. So, yeah. you know, we have them any chance they get. Anytime I get a vote on a Scottish Jazz Award or whatever, I vote for all my students. I never would vote for <laughs> Of course you do. Of course you do. Good on you. Good on you. Well, Tommy, we've got to bring this close with our last our last question, which is we we ask this of everyone. It's not so much a, a question, it's a it's a recommendation. And we always ask someone to uh to finish the interview with a live track or live concert or live album. What is your is there a go to that you have, a favorite live album or a favorite live track? Uh, and we always put a link uh, on on the website uh, and on the episode so that our listeners can can listen to it. You may not have one favorite. I think that's very tricky. But what one what one comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I did see this question on the list um, in in uh, the email from Chris, and I really at that time racked my brains and I thought of everybody that you know, Coltrane live at the Vanguard, live in Paris, whatever. and. Um, <laughs> I I just couldn't pick one. Um, I've I made one live record with Arrow Anderson, you know, and it's it's got that energy. I wouldn't I wouldn't never pick it. Um, for me, why, why would you? Why wouldn't you pick that one? Because I'm playing on it. I don't like anything I do. I've I've got to, you know, it's very difficult for me to uh, like any of that kind of stuff. You'd have to analyze it if you put it on. No, it's just, I'd be, you know, I'd be thinking about what mouthpiece I use, what microphone yeah. was there, how you did this. Because, because recording these days is very different from how you recorded in the past, because in the past you use analog tape and razor yeah. blades and, you know, preamps with these kind of microphones and the sound was uh, much more high definition than, than now where everybody's recording, you know, digitally and the, the sound is automatically degraded and then it's put through all this stuff and, and it just doesn't, doesn't sound as good. I mean, the, the quality of the sound, but um, it's, it's yeah, live recording. I mean, I, I like all the, the Keith Jarrett live recordings, um, you know, and he's done quite a lot. Uh, um, my um, favorite Jarrett would be one of the standards one where he starts with like Stella by Starlight. You know, and he's you can you can tell the room's packed, or it might be him playing solo, in uh, in Italy, La Scala. It just the the piano sound is just so gorgeous, and he ends with um, somewhere over the rainbow, you know, mm. or or the record where he plays you know tunes that you know like Danny Boy and stuff, or he might might be improvising on one chord for like twenty minutes. All those all those experiences where you're hearing somebody get in the zone and and just improvise and develop ideas as you know or shakti or trila gurtu or i mean it's just because i play everything i mean i've this is just some of my cds back here there's like a whole there's and i've got more over there and you know everybody's <laughs> doing stuff online i've got my lp player there and lps there and you just you know that or, lots do you know what you're it's impossible your in, your enthusiasm and love of music is infectious, Tommy. Well, it's only eight forty-five. Still, lots of time left in the day. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, it's it's been an absolute pleasure, and um, oh, 
yeah, it's, I feel like we've just scratched the surface, to be honest. So Part one. Part one. Yes. We'll, we'll get you back on. Part yes. one. Part, Good man. Thanks very much, two. Tommy. Thank you so much, Tommy. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Alex. Tommy Smith there. I feel like we only scratched the surface with that chat, so I'm sure there's there's mileage in the second episode. Um, I think the main thing I take away from that interview is Tommy's drive and from a, a really early age, the desire to, to absolutely master his instrument. And if you ever listen to his playlist on, on the webpage, you'll get an idea of the, the breadth of styles that he's, he's branched into. In particular, have a listen to the entirety of Peter and the Wolf, which is quite recent, and the collaboration with Liz Lockhead. It's fantastic. And even though Tommy mentioned that it wasn't really created with kids in mind, it's it's a great way to introduce uh, young ones to jazz and, and to Liz's work, which is which is always wonderful. Um, just after recording the interview with Tommy, I stumbled over a bunch of photographs that I'd taken back in, I think, 1990. And they were taken at the Edinburgh Jazz Festival at an open-air concert in Princess Street Gardens. I think one of the bands was the Rebirth Brass Band, who'd come over from the States. Um, there's a few of Humphrey Littleton and some of, yep, Tommy Smith. So this was about 20, 22 years before I decided to even take up photography. So I suppose it could be classed as the first gig I ever shot. Um, and more than that though, it, so it must've been on a, a wee disposable camera. And I'd obviously thought about it a bit beforehand and bought black and white film for the occasion because jazz and when I got it developed I even got it developed in a kind of sepia colour as well because that's that's even more jazz isn't it um, so and also I had a wee look through my ticket album my bible and found a program from a couple of years later when I was 16 and it was a jazz competition in Edinburgh as well. I can't remember where it was. I played in a jazz trio with a piano player called Adam and a bassist called Johnny. And I don't remember much about the day, but I do remember that I was not fantastic on the day. Um, I think a lot of the players in the competition, the other players, were bogglingly good. And that was obviously quite intimidating. Um, but I'd also decided to play one of the tunes on someone else's saxophone, which was, yeah, great idea, Chris. Nice one. But the main reason it was quite intimidating was that Humphrey Littleton was the compere, and one of the judges was, yep, Tommy Smith. No pressure. Um, anyway, we, we didn't win, but I do remember that it was quite a highlight of my, my young life at the time. I think it was about... 
yeah, 16. So um, anyway, I'll pop a few of the images on the website so you can have a wee look. Yeah, the stuff from 1990. It's not my best work, but it's not bad for a 14-year-old on a disposable. Um, and I'll also pop a few from Tommy's last gig at Band on the Wall, which we mentioned, um, which I think was 2018. That's the one with Tommy's biceps. Website is gigstoriespodcast.com. And yeah, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at gigstoriespod. We'll both be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode and we can all hear about Alex at Boardmasters and find out if Sam Fender actually was worth the wait. I have a feeling he was and I think Alex may have had a little cry. Bless him. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Spread the word, share the pod, give us a wee review if you like it and we'll see you next time on the Gig Stories Podcast. Bye. Bye.